July 4th, our Independence Day, marks the anniversary of 56 Americans founding a new country by writing and signing the Declaration of Independence. Or does it? How long has it been since you learned about the Declaration of Independence? More importantly, how much did you actually learn about it? Did you learn who the primary author of the document was? Did you learn from whom that author borrowed many of the ideas laid out in the document? Did you learn that the famous painting that captured the Declaration of Independence, the mental image so many of us have about the scene, isn't remotely accurate? And did you learn that July 4th might actually be the wrong date to celebrate Independence Day? Well, if you didn't learn those things, have I got the podcast episode for you. This July 4th weekend, be the only person at your cookout who's well-versed in some of the more subtle history of the Declaration of Independence. I'm Ian Cheney, and this is Patriotic Politics for America. Today, there are five interesting facts about the Declaration of Independence that I'd like to share with you. See how many of these five facts you already knew. Number one, though 56 men signed it, it was mostly drafted by five men, with one of those five its primary author. Let's unpack that. The 56 men were members of the glorious Second Continental Congress, easily one of my three favorite Congresses of all time. Okay, I have no idea how to do footnotes on a podcast, but longtime readers of my website know that I do love a good footnote, so let's try it out. If you don't think I've ranked my favorite Congresses in my head, you must be new here. Here's my top five. My favorite Congress ever would be the Stamp Act Congress, which took place in New York City in 1765. It was the first time that some of the colonies sent representatives who assembled to let the British Crown know, hey, could you knock it off? They had the first formalization of the complaint that the colonies should not be taxed without representation in Parliament. This Congress did that, and it's historically slept on. My second favorite Congress ever would be the Second Continental Congress, which we're talking about today. My third favorite Congress ever is the Congress of Vienna, which took place in Vienna, Austria, starting in 1815. The only non-American Congress on this list, the Congress of Vienna was the first of several prominent trans-European gatherings to establish and maintain peace after brutal war. In this case, it came after the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars they spawned, which had across two decades killed millions of Europeans and ravaged the continent. Though this Congress rolled back some social and political progress of the period, it at least served as a harbinger of the later Paris Peace Conference, the later League of Nations, the later United Nations, and the much later European Union. In fourth place on my favorite Congresses list, would be the first Continental Congress of Philadelphia in 1774. 
though technically the second Continental Congress was the sequel to this original, it wasn't nearly as cool. The first Continental Congress is the new hope to the second Continental Congress's Empire Strikes Back, if you know what I mean. And in fifth place, my fifth favorite Congress of all time, would be the Congress of the Confederation, which met at assorted locations throughout the 1780s. It was America's first elected governing body after declaring independence. It was considerably weak, but a necessary pivot on the way to the Constitution at decade's end. Oh, and in last place, my least favorite Congress, the current American Congress. Anyway, back to the Second Continental Congress. It was appointed by leaders of the 13 American colonies. The Congress had hurriedly assembled in May of 1775, weeks after the battles of Lexington and Concord inaugurated the American Revolutionary War. But May of 1775 is still 14 months from independence in the topic of today's episode. For the first part of its existence, in the year or so before July 1776, Congress walked the narrowest of tightropes. On the one hand, it wished to reconcile with the British Empire, evidenced by the rejected Olive Branch petition it sent to King George III. But on the other hand, it also organized the war effort against His Majesty's military. Then, after about a year of being spurned by the King and Parliament, Virginian Richard Henry Lee proposed to Congress the following resolution. The date was June 7th. 1776. And Lee said, Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. Congress knew this proposal was coming and anticipated a lengthy debate. Just in case it voted in favor of Lee's resolution to declare independence, Congress appointed a Committee of Five to draft a document that would explain the decision to declare independence, explain it to the colonists, to the crown, to the world, and to posterity. The five men in the committee were Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, John Adams of Massachusetts, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. You may have heard of a few of them. Of the five, Jefferson was the greenest. In fact, the 33-year-old was a late addition to the Second Continental Congress. He had been a replacement for Congress's initial president, Peyton Randolph, who returned to Virginia to be Speaker of the colony's legislature, the historic House of Burgesses. Virginia needed an emergency stand-in at the Congress, and they chose the young but brilliant Jefferson, who readers of my book might know I consider the 24th most influential figure of Western history. Replacing Randolph as president of the Congress was Massachusetts's John Hancock, another colonist to whom Randolph ceded history. Hancock as president would become the first to sign the declaration and not without flourish. Recognizing that five men writing one document could get cumbersome, the committee looked to John Adams, perhaps the most vocal colonist in Liberty's cause, to compose the first draft. He 
he passed this responsibility to Jefferson, acknowledging the latter's superior pen and, more importantly, his home colony of Virginia. Not only was Virginia the biggest colony, but Southern leaders, wealthy and Anglican, were less enthused about the revolution compared to the more liberal Northern Congregationalists and Presbyterians. If a Virginian wrote the document of separation, such a choice would more likely garner Southern support for the war. Adams would later, for the same reason, also suggested Virginian George Washington to lead the Continental Army. These decisions to elevate Washington and Jefferson into the top tier of America's pantheon cost Adams his own spot. That's how it fell to Jefferson, the last-minute replacement to write most of America's founding document. Though the Committee of Five and the broader Congress made edits, it's mostly Jefferson's words that declared our independence and thrust him forward into a dazzling political career. Number two. But even Jefferson ripped off ideas from others, predominantly one man. Of the remarkably brief document, it's the second paragraph that sings most beautifully, and I urge you to look at the actual text of the document. After the first paragraph says that an explanation for their actions is necessary, the second paragraph lays out three premises and one key conclusion. Premise number one was that all men are created equal. Premise number two was that all men are born with certain rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Premise number three, that to protect these rights, we need a government. And the conclusion was that if the government doesn't protect these rights, its citizens should be able to get a new government. This boiled down brilliance, outlining the role and purpose of government, has echoed across history ever since. Jefferson writes it like no one else could, but these ideas did not spawn from his head alone, nor the heads of his fellow committeemen. The ideas he used had been reverberating across the Atlantic for some time. The American Revolution can be seen as the culmination of the Enlightenment a European-born intellectual movement of the late 17th and 18th centuries. Among the ideas from these thinkers was the equality of all men and their natural rights. Men like John Locke, Voltaire, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote about these ideas before Jefferson could hold a quill. Two of those men I just listed, by the way, made their way into my, bo into my book's top 30 ranking. Locke, for example, outlined a social contract between the government and the governed. It stipulated that people give up some of their freedoms in exchange for rights that the government must protect. In other words, the government restricts one's natural abilities to, say, kill or steal or break any number of other laws in order to protect society at large. Importantly, the social contract also states the government must have boundaries as well, the inviolable rights of its citizens. Locke's two treatises on government believed these rights to be life, liberty, 
and property. Despite the swapping out of that third guarantee, the parallel to Jefferson's wording is clear, and yet it came decades earlier. Locke went on to assert that if a government violated these rights, then the people had the right to rebel against their government and install a better one. Similarly, the Declaration notes that, quote, when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, end quote. Essentially, Jefferson and the Committee of Five were aided by a sixth man, the ghost of John Locke. Let's go to number three. Number three, forget everything you thought you knew about July 4th. Back to the Second Continental Congress. So Lee started the independence debate on June 7th, and the Committee of Five, just in case Congress voted for separation, began drafting an explanatory document. Four weeks later, Congress did indeed vote for independence. The date of the vote that separated America from the British Empire was July 2nd. July 2nd was the vote for independence. On the third of the month, John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail, and said, quote, the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America, end quote. He thought July 2nd would be a day forever celebrated in their country's hopefully long and glorious future. Adams wasn't wrong about a lot. Bias alert, he's my favorite founding father. But boy, did he mess up his Independence Day prediction. Or perhaps it is we who messed it up. Why did the fourth become the tradition if it was on the second that Congress voted for independence? It's because after voting for independence, the Second Continental Congress debated the final wording on the document declaring it. It was on July 4th that they released the document to the public. Still, by then, the leaders of the new nation considered themselves independent for two full days already. Number four, there's a famous John Trumbull painting about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And it's wrong. So first of all, you should Google the painting. John Trumbull, Declaration of Independence. It'll show right up. You've all seen it. And it's kind of what we picture when it comes to the great signing of the document but there are some serious problems with it. First of all, it was painted 40 years later. So if the work has some inaccuracies, these are understandable mistakes stemming from Trumbull not even being there. And moreover, not only was Trumbull not there for the scene, the scene never happened. Again, I don't just mean that they didn't pose for Trumbull, who painted the scene four decades later. I mean that these men were actually never in the same room at the same time, to say nothing of signing the document together all at once. Instead, the signatures were piecemealed over time. Some of the depicted members of Congress weren't even in Philadelphia 
in that first week of July. During the chaotic early developments of the Revolutionary War, delegates were frequently on the move, including coming in and out of Philadelphia that summer. Historians think most of them hadn't signed their name yet until August 2nd. Nevertheless, there's a lot we can learn from John Trumbull's 1817 work. If you're not driving, I suggest you call up the painting to follow along with some of these descriptions. First, Trumbull visited Philadelphia's Independence Hall to accurately depict the room where the Second Continental Congress met. Next, I want you to take a look at the five men in the middle of the painting. Can you think of a group of five relevant to the Declaration of Independence? That's right, it's the Committee of Five. You can see Adams to our far left and Franklin to our far right. Of the five, it's the tall man in the middle who's actually holding and presenting the document. That is, of course, the document's primary author, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson is handing the declaration to the seated president of the Continental Congress, John Hancock. He is about to affix the most famous signature in history. Perhaps the most fun piece of artistic analysis here involves Jefferson and Adams. Many believe Jefferson's foot is blocking Adams to his right, our left, which mirrors Jefferson blocking Adams from peak founding father greatness, a summit reserved for probably only Franklin, Washington, and Jefferson, despite Adams' crucial role in the revolution in early stages of independence. It's an attractive sentiment, especially since Jefferson defeated Adams in the young country's most heated presidential election, that of 1800. However, most disagree that this foot-blocking was Trumbull's intent. All right, let's move on to the fifth and final interesting tidbit about the American Declaration of Independence. Number five, it's debatable whether the document created a new country. Okay, now back to the document itself. We know that the first paragraph explained why the document should be written, and that the second paragraph ripped off John Locke. After that, Jefferson shifts into complaint mode and lists specific grievances against the crown. This list goes on for quite a while because there were, as you can imagine, many grievances. In the next to last paragraph, the document asserts that the colonies have been more than reasonable and repeatedly worked toward a peaceful reconciliation before getting rebuffed each time, which forced them to take this dramatic step. And finally, in the document's last paragraph, Jefferson gets around to actually declaring independence, incorporating Richard Henry Lee's resolution. Here's an excerpt, and I'm going to annoyingly emphasize a few phrases inside of it. Here we go. These united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states 
They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all the other acts and things which independent states may of right do." End quote. Colonies plural? The phrase independent states used twice? Referring to these states as they? Does that sound like a unified country to you? Me neither. It can be argued that from this moment until at least the U.S. Constitution went into effect a dozen years later, the 13 colonies turned states were 13 different countries bound together in an alliance. The document's language certainly implies that confederate status. And soon, the alliance's new governing document, the Articles of Confederation, is more explicit about it. Lasting from 1781 until the enacting of the Constitution, the Articles pulled the 13 original states into a confederation with the National Congress. But that National Congress had almost no authority over the states, and there was no national executive or court system. Essentially, the states almost always operated independently, with no intrusion from a national capital. Instead, each state had their own legislatures, governors, judges, currencies even, taxes, armies, and trading policies. It was an understandable decision after escaping from underneath an overbearing crown micromanaging the colony's affairs. Why trade one distant capital in London for a less distant capital in Philadelphia? No, local government for local decisions was the answer, and they created a system to respect that. However, the system eventually proved to be an inefficient, toothless mess. And in 1787, the Constitutional Convention centralized and structured the government with which we're now familiar. Perhaps it is only then that we can say a truly united country began, and the United States of America became a singular term instead of a plural one. wasn't all that interesting. Knowing more about your country's founding, you are now an even more knowledgeable American than you were before. You've earned your barbecue and cookout this weekend. I'd wish you a happy 4th of July, but now we know better. Let's just stick with happy Independence Day. I'm Ian Cheney, and this was Presidential Politics for America. <laughs>